Welcome back to Let's Get Haunted with your host, Matt Strong and Allie. Welcome back, guys, to episode 112, Manson Family Conspiracies Part 2. Yeah. So if at the first episode you were like that's crazy i want to hear the rest i have really good news for you (laughs) i'm just gonna go ahead and say if you are brand new listening to this podcast and for some reason you didn't listen to the first episode of the manson family first of all you should go do that but second of all if you don't want to hear any of our intro any of us talking about our personal life or whatever you can go down into the show notes right now the very first sentence is gonna say in all caps skip to this time to hear the story from the title and you can go ahead and do that at any time otherwise we are going to take a few moments here to connect with our haunted community and talk about ourselves so that's right if you're not interested in us or our community that's fine just skip yeah go to the show notes find the timestamp, and fucking skip it but speaking of our amazing haunted community i would love to shout out our donors for this episode we have cindy who made a generous donation this week thank you so much cindy we also have lady luna sydney and katie british cyborg and peter barker and malik the legendary peter, peter barker, barker and, and malik i who is cyborg british cyborg says positive hauntings for the haunties. Oh, so now we have the British cyborgs on our side? Look, if we can have artificial intelligence on our side, our podcast will be unstoppable. That's true. We do have artificial intelligence in that most of what we're reporting is artificial, <laughs> but it is intelligent. That's right. Reporting. It makes you think, and that in and of itself is a form of intelligence. I agree. I Wait, agree with myself thinking too. Thinking is a form of intelligence? <laughs> the more you think, the more you're exercising the muscle that is your brain. Is your brain a muscle? It is. (laughs) I feel like I'm losing my mind lately because I can't think. I have like no memory. I don't even know what it is. I'm mixing up words and ideas. And Alyssa has experienced a lot of this firsthand because she'll send me detailed, they're not even graphs. Like (laughs) what are, what do you call that? Like Uh, a schedule? A schedule. Yeah, Yeah. The thing with like a bunch of lines and there's like squares and rectangles and they're all the same size and they're like stacked on top of each other and some of them have dates in them. What is that? It's in a graph? And it's called a schedule. No, 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 a no. Table? A is table? Is that what you're thinking of? Yeah. It is a schedule in a table. See, this is what I'm talking about. I don't know if this is like some sort of mild or like new form of dyslexia where things lately that are like typed digital stuff all looks the same to me now. Interesting. It's so weird. I don't know if it's because I've been spending too much time at the computer, even though a computer is three-dimensional. I'm like in this one-dimensional plane, like looking at everything flat right. or whatever. And so I don't know, like things are just Wait, losing. That's, you know what? That's interesting because if the issue is that things that are typed all look the same and are like kind of devoid of personality and devoid of like meaning in a way because yeah. it's all just uniform... Would it help if things were typed in a font that is pleasing to your eye that might resemble handwriting? I'm like being dead serious. I think maybe it would. Okay, so I have this theory. It seems like science to me, so I'll tell you what it is, but I don't I'm already on board and I don't know what it is. I have felt kind of off ever since I got pregnant and I felt like I had this baby brain, which is where like I can't remember things and like, I don't know, it's just fucking weird. You just get basically dumber. Maybe I have to like learn to live with my new like stupid brain 
brain, but I watched this YouTube video that was produced by the BBC, so I feel like it's real. And they were saying that when a woman gets pregnant, her brain chemistry changes and that more energy and computing power goes to things that will help her care for the baby, like physical touch, your physical senses, like your sight, taste, hearing, but that the ability to remember, like cognitive memory and cognitive functioning, anything not related to just like the here and now, the present sounds is greatly diminished. Mm. So they can like see that in brain scans. So I'm thinking maybe it's because I don't have an emotional connection to what I'm seeing on the computer. That could be it too. Okay. Perhaps it's harder for me to remember. Wait, okay. This is another great idea. (laughs) What if... I hire a singing telegram to come to your house anytime the recording schedule changes. I honestly think that would work for me personally. Anyways, so I can't remember what we were talking about. Well, I support you in your pregnancy brain (laughs) and in singing telegrams and handwritten um, schedules. Yes. Uh, I will say I had a really, really bad memory last year when I was in a flare up and I don't really know what I did to fix it. Um, I think just time. I think I just had to wait for the flare-up to go away. And then I felt better um, because I had brain fog. But the thing that helped me was putting everything electronically. So that's interesting that electronic doesn't help you. Because it just goes to show that everybody learns differently. And everyone has different tricks to help remember things. Writing things down really works for me. Especially if I like write things down in sort of a pattern. Like, oh, I'm going to say that I have Pilates at this time and put it on the left side of the page and then the next day I'm going to say I have Pilates and I'm going to put it on the left side you know I don't know just like little things like little patterns that's like when you park at a parking garage and you're trying to remember like what floor did I park on like what section did I park on if I'm parked at 3b like we talked about last episode three looks like it's in the letter b or like okay I parked in spot number 714 seven times two is 14 right like my friend Amy and I went to lunch the other day and we parked in a spot. I don't remember what the number was now, but we just were both staring at it before we got into the elevator to go like down from the parking garage. And we were like, okay, how can we remember this number? Seven, three, two. Three minus one is two. Seven's my lucky number. Okay, mm-hmm. how else can we remember it? Seven plus three is 10. Plus one is 11. Seven, 11. Like, wow. I don't know, just like trying to remember and like until we found one that stuck in our brains. Yeah, I think that is actually like a real trick though, because I remember Sherlock Holmes, that show, he could remember everything and it was because he went to his mind castle. What? Did you ever watch that show? No. Oh, it was such a good show. The one with Benedict Cumberbitch or whatever. <laughs> it was a really good show, but he was like crazy could remember everything like he would walk into a room and like be like oh the doorknob is turned one degree this way one degree celsius exactly and he would be like that would make sense because yesterday at 3 p.m it was a little warmer than usual causing them to open up the door which would mean that the killer must have been someone who wasn't wearing a jacket which means it was a snowman (laughs) but they're like how do you remember all of this shit the way that he would remember is he would imagine taking data essentially putting it in a file like he closed his eyes and he had this palace he had built in his mind, like a fake palace. Oh, interesting. And he would walk up the stairs, turn the key, open up the door, go to a different room in his mind palace, literally open up a drawer and put the file in there and then close the drawer, walk out of the room, walk out of his mind palace, whatever. It helped him to take a memory and make it into something that his brain would think actually happened. Like it's easier for us to remember 
things that are like physical that actually happened in this world rather than just like an idea. You know, that just reminds me of SpongeBob when his mind is on fire and they're and destroying they're like, all the files, the files in his brain. Yeah. yeah, that's how I also feel. So that's the opposite of Sherlock, right? Like you have SpongeBob mind on fire versus yeah. Sherlock's mind palace. Yeah. Wow. wow. And, and maybe our goal is two. to be somewhere in between. Right. If you could bring SpongeBob into the mind palace. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Love that for us. So last week, just to recap what we went over with the Manson episode, do you want to go ahead and recap what you think and yeah. then I'll recap what you think happened? Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> let me let me go into my mind palace yes. and take out the file that is Manson Family Conspiracies Part 1 and tell you what I remember. This is what I remember. You had a great section on the Dust Bowl. My friends, as you know, I came out here to see things with my own eyes. Which is haunted in and of itself. Love that. Love that you included that. It threw me off right from the start. Right. I was like, are we talking about the Dust Bowl? Was the dust actually a ghost? But we're going to win on this problem. And then it goes into the story of this young child who kind of grew up in this impoverished household where his mom was kind of looked down upon by society. And so he grew up almost, this is my interpretation, with like maybe a little bit of a chip on his shoulder. I went to a, a reform school in 43 and I've been fighting ever since. I've never sold out. They've never beat me. I haven't been beaten. Like maybe feeling not so adequate, mm. but I know in his own book, he like counteracted that perception and was right. like, no, I'm totally fine. And then you're yeah. like, well, but you're Charles Manson. So yeah. how fine are you? Is Charlie Manson crazy? Or whatever that means. Sure, he's crazy as mad as a hatter. What difference does it make? You know, a long time ago, being crazy meant something. Nowadays, everybody's crazy. Well, God, I guess you're my best friend being I invented you. Are you Jesus Christ? Which Jesus? There's all kinds of Jesuses. There's a black Jesus down in Florida. He's having a good time. There's a Mexican Jesus in Mexico. I mean, there's all kinds of Jewish Jesus. I mean, Jesus, you know. There's all kinds of Jesus coming back everywhere. And nothing can stop it. It's a consciousness that lives in your mind. Da, 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 da. Do you feel blame? Are you mad? Uh, do you feel like wolves go out for a friend? Get a friend? <laughs> and then he like gets a little older he goes to jail a couple times and he yeah. reads a book about how to manipulate people how to win friends and influence people by dale carnegie if you want enemies excel your friends but if you want friends let your friends excel you you can't win in an argument you can't, because if you lose it, you lose it. And if you win it, you lose it. Why talk about what we want? That is childish, absurd. Of course you're interested in what you want. You are eternally interested in it. But no one else is. The rest of us are just like you. We are interested in what we want. And then he goes to San Francisco area where this like hippie free love movement is just now like kind of coming to the forefront of pop culture and like public ideology. And he ingratiates himself into this like hippie community and starts manipulating young women to join him as if he is like this great leader that's gonna be able to like show them a lot about life. They are kind of like traveling on this crazy bus that looks real sketchy. <laughs> Inside yourself for your father. All is none, all is none, all is one. 
As they're like traveling along, suddenly he somehow makes friends with that guy from the Beach Boys. God only knows what I'd be without. God only knows what I'd be without. God only knows what I'd be without. That's I remember where we left off last week is the Beach Boys guy whose name I don't remember. He like it, they meet him and he's like, hey, guys, come live with me. Basically, that's totally right. The only other things I would add on is while he was in jail, he also learned to play the guitar. Oh, that's right. Yeah, he got super into music. And then he also got really into Scientology. He read some books on that and into some like science fiction stuff. And he sort of meshed all of that together to come up with this idea that he was like this messianic figure. Also, the other thing you left out is there was lots of LSD. Yeah. Oh, yeah. How could I forget? I That's know. the most fun part of it's, any story about the 60s and 70s. Right. So he's taking LSD and he believes that he is getting a message from this music that they're listening to when they're oh, partying. That's right. The White Album by the Beatles, which was a really successful album at the time, very popular. We meant more to kids than Jesus did or religion at that time. I wasn't knocking it or putting it down. I was just saying it as a fact. And it sort of, it is true, especially more for England than here. You know, but I'm not saying that we're better or greater or comparing us with Jesus Christ as a person or God as a thing or whatever it is. You know, I just said what I said and it was wrong or was taken wrong. There was a song on it called Helter Skelter. Although we listened to it and both came to the conclusion that it did not sound in any way like it was foretelling some sort of disaster apparently when you take a bunch of lsd and you're charles manson you think that helter skelter by the beatles is foretelling a race war between the black panthers and the u.s government and that there is going to be some sort of race war that is started by some sort of event and then there's going to be for whatever reason a vacuum of power which i don't understand why if the black panthers started this war wouldn't they be like okay now we're in power why would they just be like, yeah. hey, Manson, you and your like other white people that we literally just tried Don't to know. pull out of yeah. power, you take the power. Like, that's the part that doesn't make sense. I mean, well, there's a lot that doesn't make sense. There's a but. lot that doesn't make sense. I will say, though, maybe I just haven't taken enough LSD to be right. able to understand the inner workings of the government. <laughs> Yeah, I definitely don't understand the inner workings of the government. No, I'm constantly mystified by choices that are made in our government and yeah. in most governments around the world, to be fair. Yeah. Like you'll read a story and you're like, why Why would anyone ever do that? A moment on this, though, weren't you the person who was telling me that in the U.S. when people who are like mentally ill and have hallucinations where they're hearing voices and things like that, when they're ill in the United States, they for some reason have like negative. Yes. Um, they hear negative voices that are like the government is plotting to kill everyone and right. like your neighbors hate you and like all that kind of stuff. But in other countries they don't have like paranoia instead the voices are telling them nice things like like clean your room or pick up your clothes right. or like go to work yeah. yeah yeah isn't that super interesting i really think that says a lot about our culture capitalism capitalism government what's some more buzzwords uh, uh lsd <laughs> the next thing that happens which is a surprise to everyone is manson goes and makes friends with some of hollywood's elites and a crazy t twist of events wilson asks charles manson and his family 
to stay at his beautiful mansion on Sunset Boulevard. In a surprise twist, that's not really a surprise twist. He's sleeping with all of the females from Manson's family. Family. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, everyone's a piece of shit in this story. But I'm ready to hear about, you know, maybe Wilson does something where, like, he helps some of these women escape. Or maybe he, like, deprograms some people. Or maybe he realizes he's a piece of shit in this scenario and starts a charity. I don't know. I'm very excited excited to hear this second part of this story. Some things happen that sort of spook some of the people who are really close to Wilson. They start to see sides of Charles Manson that they think are potentially dangerous. Like he's got these temper tantrums. He doesn't respond to criticism very well. And so they start thinking, perhaps this man shouldn't be this close. Specifically, Wilson's manager is like, hey, I really don't like this guy and all these girls are like living at your house and you guys are having these like LSD sex parties and he's like going on these race war rants. It's not a good look. No, ruins any gathering. Any orgy is ruined by that. Yeah. Instantly. Like nothing gives you a soft dick faster than someone talking about a coming race war. (laughs) And perhaps Wilson never heard any of this because he was like having sex with women and didn't hear any of this. But I don't know. I'm also just imagining being high on anything and having someone try to talk about politics to me. Uh, Nothing would make me more nervous and spiral into more of like a negative trip than someone trying to lecture me about politics in general. Yeah, I would just be like, absolutely not. Yeah, I'm immediately running away. I bet you his PR team was like, don't ever speak of this ever again. I'm trying to find information on that, but I can't. And I don't know if it's that all of it's been like scrubbed from the internet, basically. I can't imagine that he didn't not say something about it, you know? Right. But maybe it was a different time in the 60s. We didn't have Twitter. We didn't have like, cancel power so if you found out like oh wilson was hanging out with the manson family and then he just was like no i'm not yeah yeah or like charles manson gave you one of his songs and he's just like no he didn't i mean i guess if you never gave him writing credit like who's to say that he really did get his song like Maybe Charles Manson just did like a cover or his own rendition of a song that already existed. We just don't know. Okay, I found some information. In an article for Oxygen.com under their true crime buzz, there's an article written August 16th of 2020 that says, Were Charles Manson and the Beach Boys Dennis Wilson really friends? By Ted Quarterman. The BBC reported that Manson apparently signed over his rights to the writer's royalty in exchange for a one-off cash payment and a motorcycle. After the song's release in 1968, Manson sent Wilson a single bullet with a threatening message attached. Manson recalled in a 1993 interview with Diane Sawyer, quote, I gave Wilson a bullet because he changed the words to my song, end quote. Afterwards, Wilson's friends and fellow musician Van Dyke Parks claimed to have witnessed Wilson viciously assault Manson in response to the threat, according to The Guardian. Wilson had officially cut ties with the Manson family, but he was still apprehensive about their unpredictable behavior. 
Quote, Dennis was aware enough of what Charlie was capable of, which is why he slept with a gun under his pillow, journalist David Dalton said in Helter Skelter. Craziness. I also found this interview with Karen Lamb Wilson, who is Dennis Wilson's ex-wife, about Dennis Wilson and the Manson family. In this interview, which is on a YouTube video for Doors Fan Forever and doesn't really have any more information about the video, but it seems legit, so I'm just going to put it here anyway. Karen goes into detail about what was going on with the Beach Boys during the time that Dennis was friends with Charles Manson. Brian Wilson, Karen's ex-brother-in-law, who was the creative force behind the Beach Boys, had a serious bout with drugs and was diagnosed as schizophrenic, staying in bed for four years in the early 70s. As talented as Brian is, as much as I admire him, I really don't think he likes to be in the limelight. I don't think so at all. I just don't think so. I think now, at this point in his life, he'll probably do anything to stay out of it. Dennis, however, loved the limelight. He was a natural ham, just wanting to please people off stage as well as on. Hi. My name is Dennis Wilson. I make rock and roll records. There was a magnetism about him, charisma. He was unpretentious, charming, and had a heart of gold. From all accounts, Dennis was very gentle and unpretentious. But he was also defiant and undisciplined, constantly hunting for pleasure but never finding happiness. His weaknesses set him up for a friendship with Charles Manson, who touted the virtues of free love and drugs. Soon, the Manson family was living in Dennis's Beverly Hills mansion. Dennis was at that point intrigued by the lifestyle of many women around him. Free love was psychedelic. You know, we were all new to it. It left us incredibly vulnerable. And then it ultimately scared the hell out of him. In 1968, Dennis Wilson did an interview for The Record Mirror. The headline reads, Dennis Wilson, I Live With 17 Girls. In the interview, Dennis talks about how he came to live with the Manson family. And we can see here that this was during much brighter times before any of the threatening behavior happened. It gives us a glimpse into the mindset that Dennis Wilson was in and the mindset that Charles Manson was so easily able to manipulate. The article reads, I still believe in meditation and I'm not experimenting with tribal living. I live in the woods in California, near Death Valley, with 17 girls. They're space ladies, and they'd make a great group. I'm thinking of launching them as the family gems. How did you come to meet up with no less than 17 girls? Dennis says, It happened strangely. I went up into the mountains with my houseboy to take an LSD trip. We met two girls hitchhiking. One of them was pregnant. We gave them a lift, and a purse was left in the car. About a month later, near Malibu, I saw the pregnant girl again, only this time she'd had her baby. I was overjoyed for her, and it was through her that I met all the other girls. I told them about our involvement with the Maharishi, and they told me they too had a guru, a guy named Charlie, who'd recently come out of jail after 12 years. His mother was a hooker, his father was a gangster. He drifted into crime, but when I met him, I found he had great musical ideas. We're writing together now. He's dumb in some ways, but I accept his approach and have learned from him. He taught me a dance, the inhibition. You have to imagine you're a frozen man and the ice is thawing out. You start with your fingertips, then all the rest of you. 
Then you extend it to a feeling that the whole universe is thawing out. The interviewer asks, are you supporting all of these people? Dennis responds, no, if anything, they're supporting me. I had all of the rich status symbols, Rolls Royce, Ferrari, home after home. Then I woke up, gave away 50 to 60% of my money. Now I live in one small room with one candle and I'm happy, I'm finding myself. Soon, even Dennis would see that Manson was dangerous and threw him out a year before the Tate-LaBianca murders. But he didn't stop his constant search for pleasure. His womanizing and drinking started putting a strain on his marriage with Karen. Do you mess around? Other women are becoming more apparent. Now, I mean, I can turn my head so many times, but it's getting a little overwhelming. So Manson knows that Melcher and Bergen had moved out of that 10050 Cello Drive house, but he never forgot the location and he never forgot the record snub that had happened there. And in the August of 1969, the house was now being rented by filmmaker Roman Polanski and his wife, actress Sharon Tate. So Nat is showing me two photos of this home. It's very large. It looks like a one-story ranch style home, um, but very, very large on a hill with lots of vegetation and trees. And It looks magical, yeah, right? Yeah. It looks like the perfect place to start your new life with your, you know, filmmaker husband. And that's what they do. Sharon Tate meets Roman Polanski. They fall in love. They get married. She gets pregnant. She calls that home that they moved into the love house. Meanwhile, Manson's paranoia is increasing. He says that their commune is under this threat about the coming race war. In an effort to make Helter Skelter, the coming race war, begin he orders a group of his followers to go to that address and kill everyone inside. Here's some photos of Sharon at the time. She was eight and a half months pregnant. Yeah, she's beautiful. She looks a lot like Twiggy, if you guys are familiar with the supermodel Twiggy. She's very skinny, very blonde, super bright white teeth. She's pregnant here looking at baby clothes. Yeah, very pretty lady. Sharon Tate is the actress and wife of director Roman Polanski, and she was only 26 years old and eight and a half months pregnant on August 8th, 1969. Polanski conveniently was in Europe his friend Wojciech Frykowski and Frykowski's girlfriend, who was a coffee heiress named Abigail Folger, oh, were wow. staying with Sharon Tate at the house. Interestingly enough, Tate's ex-fiance and her ex-boyfriend, this celebrity hairstylist named Jay Sebring, was also staying at the house with them. Roman Polanski and Tate were having serious issues in their marriage at this time. So it's a bit sus that her ex-fiance boyfriend was over, in my opinion. But apparently, according to sources, he was really cool with Roman Polanski. Also, all of these people fucked each other. They were all like into cucking. They were all into orgies. They would have these huge orgies. Sharon was kind of like passed around by Roman to like all of his Hollywood friends as like kind of the same way that what Manson was doing, like using women's bodies and using sex in order to get like favors from people. Abusers gonna abuse. 
Here's a photo of her with her ex-fiance, Jay Sebring, at the house, and she's pregnant there. Yeah, so this is, um, they're the same height. I'm going to describe this for our listeners. They're the same height. She has super long, blonde, straight hair. Kind of looks like a fembot from yeah. Austin Powers. Yeah. You know, like that 1960s, like, right. beautiful, statuesque woman. And then next to her is her ex-fiance. He has a little more of a tan than her and has, like, black hair and a Speedo. Yeah, he looks like a hippie, too. I think this is another strange thing that happened. When Sharon and Jay were together at his house a few years prior, she had a premonition one night. According to an article from the Manson family, more to the story by H. Allegra Lansing, quote, Sharon woke during the night to see the appearance of a strange small man at the foot of her bed. She raced down the hall to the stairway where she saw another apparition, a man with his throat slashed. Disoriented, she went back to bed, convinced that she had just had a bad dream, end quote. Shortly after that, she went to go film a movie abroad called The Fearless Vampire Killers in 1967, and that's where she met and fell in love with the leading man who was the Polish director Roman Polanski. Sharon then had to make the difficult call back to the States to break off things with her fiancé, Jay Sebring. Jay more than took it in stride. He accepted her decision with grace and dignity. He told her they would remain friends, and they did. He even became friends with Roman, which couldn't have been easy. When Sharon became pregnant, Roman was not happy. As a Holocaust survivor, he viewed children as an unnecessary worry, and he still enjoyed sex with other women, a habit that his wife had vowed not to force him to break, but was still deeply displeased about. When Sharon told Roman about the baby, his first suggestion was that she terminate the pregnancy. Sharon then called ex-fiance Jay Sebring, who listened as she talked about the state of her marriage. She told Jay that Roman had encouraged her to have an abortion. When she refused, he had a very public affair with Michelle Phillips of the Mamas and Papas band, who was a good friend of Sharon's. Sharon asked Jay if she should have an abortion and leave her husband. Jay supported Sharon, who ultimately chose to keep the baby and remain with Roman, end quote. I didn't realize Roman Polanski was a Holocaust survivor. I don't know. It's crazy. It just like, I think the reason why that shocks me is just it shows like how recent a lot of these like world events were. Like I know. we're really not that far away from the Holocaust. Yeah, it's scary. Yeah. Yeah. So I just wanted to shed light a little bit on what was going on in their private lives. Because like I said, all of these people were having sex with each other like all of these people were meeting up they were having orgies free love yeah they were filming it they had like porn tapes and stuff at their house of these orgies you know that sharon was the star of them but like you know she it sounded like she wasn't she didn't want that it sounded like she was in love with roman and she wanted to have a family she wanted to have a baby with him she wanted him to stop sleeping with other women and he didn't want to and he didn't want to to start that at all right yeah it sounds like she was trying everything in her power to keep this man's interest because she really loved him and 
but in the process lost herself along the way. Mm -hmm. I mean, whether or not you're going to have a child is a very personal decision, but you shouldn't base it on your partner, right? Like you should decide what's best for you. And similarly, if you want to have orgies, fuck yeah, dude, do it. But if you're only doing it to please your partner, like then that's problematic. Yeah, Yeah, you shouldn't do that. It's not going to feel good for your self-esteem. And then you're going to end up getting manipulated and start the cycle back over again. Right. And I'm sure having some of these like porn tapes filmed of her that adds another layer because she's like well maybe if I like displease him some of this gets leaked I don't know you know yeah on August 8th Manson orders his follower Charles Tex Watson to go to 10050 Cielo Drive with several other cult members and kill everyone there quote as gruesomely as you can end quote On this day, on Friday, August 8th, Sharon, who's eight months pregnant, was home. It was hot. She was tired. Her two friends had just run errands and both returned at around the same time that Jay came over. That's the story. I'm calling bullshit on that. I think Jay was probably over there the whole time. The four went over for a late dinner at this restaurant called El Coyote, which was a Mexican restaurant in the valley before they returned to Cielo Drive around 11 p.m. Here's a photo of this. I feel like I've seen this. Nat is showing me like an old style diner type of thing where, um, you know, those like almost tent things that go over the roof. Um, Yeah, like an awning. Yeah. So it's like a red tent awning and it says El Coyote uh, Mexican food. There's a lot of stuff in the valley that looks like that. So maybe I've just seen other things that look like that. But I was freaked out because I was like, oh, my gosh, if that's still there, that's super haunted. Fun fact, coyotes are also the names of the people that smuggle people over the border. What? what they're called mm-hmm. coyotes so i'm saying coyote but it could be el coyote well i'm just i'm just giving a fun fact i don't know what the restaurant's named after it could be named after an actual coyote or it could be named after um people who smuggle people over the border is el coyote also the same as a coyote but yeah. it's just a double name yeah it's just what you uh, call people someone are who does called. that a coyote yeah. okay yeah. i thought you were saying a different word in no. spanish oh no <laughs> Nope, same thing. (laughs) Okay. I was just given a fun fact. Thank you. I really like facts like that. One of the girls who's staying there, Gibby, changes into a a long nightgown. She goes into this bedroom where her and the guy, Wachek, are sharing. She starts reading. Wachek is in the living room. He lays down and he falls asleep on the sofa. Jay and Sharon go into the bedroom where she changed into a two-piece bikini with a sheer over it. It was really hot. She's trying to keep cool. They sit on the bed and they're talking as old friends and former lovers. At this time, Watson drives down to the estate with Susan Atkins, Patricia Krenwinkel, and Linda Kasabian, who are all followers of the Manson family. They scale this embankment so that they don't have to go through the locked gate that's leading up to the driveway. And they climb up the telephone pole to cut the phone lines. Kasabian would, at this time, remain outside the security gate to keep watch throughout this whole thing, so she doesn't actually go in there. When the assailants arrive on the property, they encounter a car that's driven by an 18-year-old named Stephen Parent who had apparently been visiting the estate's caretaker at his home in the guest house. 
And the caretaker, who is the sole survivor, aside from Kasabian and the assailants of this event, claims that this 18-year-old Stephen Parent was just showing him an alarm clock that he wanted to sell him so that he knew what exact time it was when he tells his story. The reason I'm telling you that because it's like kind of sounds like bullshit. It kind of sounds like he was probably involved in some way romantically or like who goes over to your house at midnight and stays there until 2 a.m. because they're trying to show you an alarm clock they want to sell you. Yeah, that's interesting. I don't know. I'm trying to think back to myself at 18. Like would I have like if I saw someone on Craigslist that was like, I'm selling an alarm clock. Come over and check it out. Like I wouldn't go over for two hours but maybe this was like a family friend or something I I don't know it, that is a weird situation Watson sees parent and parent apparently begs for his life because he's leaving he's at this time leaving the estate he shoots him to death Atkins and Krenwinkle then break into the main house they slit the screen they crawl inside Tex helps the girls get inside while they're inside, they get everyone that's in the house. And they're like, hey, everyone get in the fucking living room. And they line them up like a firing line in front of the fireplace. They did this very violently. Tex supposedly woke up Frakowski with a kick to the head, because remember, he was laying on the couch. Susan Atkins goes into the bedroom, and she has this knife wielded in her hand. She demands that Gibby, Sharon, and Jay all come out into the living room. She's like, hey, we got your friend out there. You have to come in the living room. In the living room, once everyone's in there, Watson ties their necks with rope and she tosses the end of the rope over this beam in the living room. At this point, everyone's like, okay, this is not just like a normal break-in like where they just want our money or whatever. This is like getting kind of scary. Tate and Sebring are linked by ropes that are tied around their necks. Jay is like, hey, we can barely breathe, you know, like you don't have to torture us. We'll give you whatever you want. We'll give you whatever money you want. Just like tell us. They're like, we don't fucking care. And at this point, Jay, who is Sharon's ex lover, is like, can't you guys see that she's pregnant? You know, she's pregnant here. This woman is eight and a half months pregnant. How could you treat a pregnant person like this? Let her sit down. He's urging Watson to stop, but Watson, in response, just shoots him in the face. He shoots Sebring twice. He pistol whips him. And then after his body falls to the ground, he walks over and he just starts stabbing him several times, even after he's dead, and then kicking him in the face. He really wanted to make this seem as gruesome and brutal as possible, right. like Manson Overkill. asked. Yeah. Both Frakowski and Folger, at this time, free themselves and run away, and they like start running away from the house but they're chased down across the yard by the other killers. Kasabian at this time is supposed to be keeping watch. She said she was just watching in horror as her friend savagely slaughtered the couple. At this time as well, pregnant Sharon Tate was still inside. She's being held captive by Susan Atkins while the dead body of her ex-lover is just on the ground next to her. Watson returns back into the living room and Sharon sees him and she begins like begging for the life of her unborn child to be spared but Watson doesn't care, and he stabs Sharon Tate to death 16 times in the back and the chest. As Sharon was being stabbed, she is pleading to spare the life of her child, but the murderers just say to her, I don't care about you or your baby. Then as they're leaving, Atkins uses Tate's blood to write the word pig on the front door, because the murders are supposed to look like something done by the Black Panthers. And at the time, pig was a derogatory term used for the white establishment. 
So they were hoping if they could make this look super gruesome, make it look like this was a publicity stunt done by the Black Panthers, that it would start this race war. But they couldn't just do that one murder. Like they needed to have this Hollywood high profile murder, but they also needed to have some other ones. Otherwise it like wouldn't look serious enough to start the race war. So the very next night, Charles Manson himself is accompanied by Watson and the other two, and they go to the Los Feliz home of Lino and Rosemary La Bianca, and they tie them up with buckskin. Manson had selected this family because they owned this grocery store in the area. Like a prominent family that everybody knew, so it would make a statement. Exactly. Manson and Watson tie the couple up. They rob them. And then they leave, but before leaving, Charles Manson orders everyone else to kill them, and he says to make it look, quote, witchy. So Watson, Van Houten, and Krenwinkel go in, and acting on orders from Manson, they stab the couple to death. Lena was found with 12 knife wounds and 14 additional wounds caused by a large fork, the kind that you use to serve meat, and the word war was carved into his flesh with a knife. When the police arrive, they see that the fork is still protruding out of his throat, and they find that Rosemary was in her bedroom with a bloody pillowcase over her head and a lamp cord tied around her throat. She had been stabbed a total of 41 times in the area of the back and the buttocks. The words rise and death to pigs were written in blood on the walls. The words helter skelter was scrawled on the front of the refrigerator, but they had misspelled Helter Skelter and they had spelled it H-E-A-L-T-E-R. The killers then take a break from the carnage and they ate milk and sandwiches from the fridge like after they killed these people, which is super fucked up. I have some really gruesome crime photos here. You ready to see them? All right, show me. The pregnant ones are specifically horrible. Yeah, this is terrible. So the first one shows a black and white photo of a person. It's a woman laying on her back on the ground. The second one is of a different angle of the same photo, but in color. Covered in stab wounds, covered in blood. Yeah, very bloody. The third one is a deceased person in the driver's seat of their vehicle covered in blood that's parent the 18 year old who was selling the alarm clock the next photos show bodies on the ground some are black and white some are color covered in blood with ropes around their neck we see sharon tate she's laying on the ground um, covered in blood as well then we have a person i'm not sure who this is um on the ground on grass outside of a home covered in blood then we have an autopsy photo of a person then we have with stab wounds everywhere then we have death to pigs written in blood on the wall then we have another autopsy photo of a woman with slashes across her head then we have a fence like a chain link fence with rope or cord around it yeah that's how they broke in oh gotcha and then the la bianca house then there is a photo of a very long-nosed pistol then there is a photo of helter skelter oh i see what you're saying i thought you said they spelled it halter skelter but i see now it's helter skelter written in blood then there is a photo of a dead body i'm assuming mr labianca with war carved into his belly and then there is a mugshot of a woman a white woman with blonde straight hair the reason i threw that mugshot in there is that was one of the assailants her eyes look devoid of a soul she's like kind of frowning like her face she's not 
intentionally frowning, but it's like the smile lines turn down on the side of her mouth. You're better at picking up on stuff like that than me. I was just thinking like these girls, they're just pretty girls. It's so crazy to think that he got them to do that. Right. He was a master manipulator, got vulnerable young people that were just looking to be part of the free love and hippie movement and manipulated them into becoming murderers but also we can't take away from their responsibility right like they had a choice yeah really really gruesome the first time I like read this story and I found out that I didn't know Sharon Tate was eight and a half months pregnant when I when she was murdered I didn't know that I like I just cried so much because it's so sad you know and just to see the pictures of her like days before her murder looking through these baby clothes thinking that she's gonna raise this child and have this life in front of her it's too sad and it like adds a layer of disgust to this I mean it's already really fucked up it just breaches a whole other level of fucked up when you would harm someone in that condition right like murder's already like awful disgusting terrible but like a pregnant woman you know I mean anybody anybody like the post-death stabbing and overkill and carving and mutilating like to me is just a completely different level of depraved. I spoke about this with my friend before when I was pregnant actually. We were talking about how it's just this like innate thing in society where we protect pregnant women and we were talking about how in Hollywood like even in movies you will see them do really fucked up stuff like in horror movies but they don't do it to like a pregnant woman because it's like too much Mm -hmm. to even see because I was pregnant at the time and people I didn't even know would like make sure I didn't have to carry something or like let me cut front of them in line or you know just like you get treated like you're this special thing that's what we were talking about and she was like it's like weird in society it's like this untouchable thing like we all really respect it after the murders the police investigators are like what the fuck happened here they don't understand the connection between these la bianca murders and the sharon tate murders at all so they think they're they're two separate incidents And they immediately start looking to the victims thinking like, okay, it must have just been their fault because they can't like comprehend that there would be some sort of weird cult that did this. Detectives began looking into the victims' lives and they tell the press that they found pornographic films in the house. They found drugs in the house. They also found drugs in J.C. Brings Porsche, which included cocaine that he had purchased that very day. They also found out that Wojciech was an alleged drug dealer for a new drug, which was called MDMA at the time. We call that Molly or ecstasy. Yeah. Can you imagine being the creator of Molly? I mean, too bad he can't claim credit, right? I know. (laughs) They start painting this as like, oh, this is just crazy. Like Like they took a bunch of cocaine and just all stabbed each other and wrote this shit because they went crazy. Because back at this time, that was kind of the narrative of like, oh, hippies are crazy and they take drugs and they just kill each other. I don't know. Also, another weird rumor that started was that Jay Sebring was like really into kink. Some of his exes came forward and were like, oh yeah, he was really into like BDSM and stuff and he liked to be tied up. He was like kinky and bondagey. So the police ran with it and they're like, oh, obviously this was just some weird sex act. Right, like a weird kinky sex party where everybody ended up stabbed. Tell me you've never been to a kinky sex party without telling me you've never been to a kinky sex party. Tell me that you don't know anything about sexuality without (laughs) telling me you don't know anything about 
about sexuality. Weirdly enough that the Manson family would end up being taken down for something totally different. In October of 1969, random members of the family were arrested at that Spawn Ranch for stealing vehicles and burning equipment. One of those arrested implicated Atkins in this earlier murder and then Atkins was jailed and then he was starting to boast to his friends that he had been responsible in the Tate murders and then word got out. So by the end of the year, all of the killers had been arrested and they had this trial which combined the Tate and La Bianca murders beginning in June of 1970. Now what's interesting about this trial is remember Kasabian, the one who stood outside and watched? Yeah. She gets granted immunity as the main prosecution witness. The following is a recording for KTLA 5 Los Angeles from August 18, 1970, in which Linda Kasabian's attorney, Gary Fleshman, proposes a deal to prosecutors so that Linda can testify against the other family members in return for complete immunity. This was initially rejected by the prosecutor, Vince Bugliosi, because they had already made an immunity deal with Susan Atkins. However, Atkins changed her mind and announced that she would not testify at the trial, which relieved her from her immunity. And then Bugliosi negotiated a deal with the Kasabian attorney where the prosecution would petition for immunity after she testified. Kasabian turned out to be this great witness. She was frank and people believed her. She left the stand after 18 days of testimony. Linda's continuing to testify to these two nights of horror. I say horror advisedly because I think what happened on these two nights you don't even see in a horror movie. Uh, they're so nightmarish that they're beyond human description. She testified today, of course, to their leaving the Tate residence to her disposal of the two knives and the clothing over the side of the hill in the Benedict Canyon area of Los Angeles, to their arriving back at Spawn Ranch where Charles Manson was waiting for them all alone. You could say that Charles Manson almost held a critique of the uh, co-defendants. Tex Watson reported to him as to what happened. He told Mr. Manson that it had been very messy, but that everyone was dead and lying all over the lawn, uh, whereupon Mr. Manson asked each of them if they felt any remorse for these murders, to which they all replied that they did not. As I understand it, he said to her, this was right after she had completed testifying about the murders and about his whatever participation he had in them. As I understand it, he said to her, you really blew it, Linda. You better say your prayers. We've now asked, I'm going to ask uh, Vince Bugliosi that she not be directed to go close to him again. She is afraid of him. That kind of comment is the first direct threat that I know of to her. The family has made indirect threats to all of us from time to time. But that did upset her some, and uh, she's very brave and very courageous. I'm concerned now, and I don't want her to go. Prosecution testimony continued today at the Sharon Tate murder trial in Los Angeles. Bill Curtis reports. Linda Kasabian had regained her composure following yesterday's dramatic description of seeing three persons stabbed and shot at the Sharon Tate house. She told of stopping in the front yard of a home to wash off the blood with a hose. She said that Patricia Krenwinkle said she hurt her hand from stabbing so much. After the killings and a conversation at a ranch, she testified that Tex Watson said he told the people in the house, I'm the devil, here to do the devil's work. He told Charlie there was a lot of panic. It was really messy, bodies laying all over the place, but all were dead. Manson asked them if they had any remorse, but they all answered no. 
Continuing, she said, then Manson told us we were going out again tonight. Last night was too messy, and he was going to show us how to do it. The LaBianca murders occurred later that night, and even more brutal than the Tate slaying. The three female defendants, their hair in braids, wore dark clothing today. They and Manson stared for long periods at Linda Kasabian. The lawyer talked about the effect of their attempts to reach her. She's interpreting them, they're constant, and she thinks these signs where she, they touch their mouths constantly means she's not telling the truth. That's her judgment about it, I don't know. How, how did she I don't care. feel when she saw the girl's hair this morning? Oh, it's obvious to her that they're, they're uh, by the way, she says that's not pigtails, that's braids. Uh, it's obvious to her that they're emulating her for some reason, and she told me, she said, I wish that they would not only wear their hair as mine, but tell the truth finally. But there is communication between the former family members. One of the girls said to Linda softly, you're killing us. She replied, you've killed yourselves. And today, when Charles Manson said, you're lying, she spoke into the microphone, you know it's the truth, Charlie. Bill Curtis, CBS News, Los Angeles. The following is an interview at the courthouse in which Sandra Good, who's a member of the family, speaks with a reporter about Linda's decision to testify against the family. What did you uh, want to say to her? And was it your idea or, or Charlie's idea? <laughs> huh? My very own idea. Yeah. And uh, Linda's a Linda's a friend of mine. I know that. And um. She hasn't, she hasn't been able to see anybody for a long, long, long time. She's been programmed and programmed and programmed with negative programming mm -hmm. to where she's, she's frightened. She wants her children back. It, whatever, whatever she has to do to get her children back, she's doing it, mm -hmm. whether it's true or untrue. And um, I can see where she'd, she would do anything to get out of jail and to get her kids back. Mm -hmm. But she's taking a lot of peace. She's um, putting a lot of people in jeopardy. Manson's put along trial for murder with them, but he didn't actually do the killing. So he's in like a strange position at this time. Right. But the prosecutor, Vincent Bugliosi, argued that the family did everything Manson ordered them to do, including the murder. So he should be implicated as well. But it's this weird thing in our justice system where Manson didn't actually commit the crime. Right. So it was like a very pivotal case. Well, it's like when somebody hires somebody to murder their spouse, like the person who actually did the murdering isn't the only one that goes to jail, right? The person who ordered it also goes to jail. There were frequent disruptions during the court. Manson was like being crazy. He was using this as a time to get even more famous and get more followers. Everyone was eventually found guilty in January of 1971, except for Kasabian, who had immunity. They all received the death penalty, but the sentences were commuted to life in prison after California abolished capital punishment in 1972. And although all of them became eligible for parole, their requests were always denied. The story of the Tate and LaBianca murders was recounted in the book Helter Skelter, the true story of the Manson murders, which was co-written by Vincent Bugliosi, who served as the prosecutor on the trial, and we will talk about the things he found out. 
Eventually, Manson dies in November of 2017 after being one of California's longest standing prison inmates. Here's the controversies that surround this, aside from just how fucked up it is. Obviously, we don't have time to get into that. Like, if you don't understand this is fucked up, I can't help you. Then you need to put yourself in jail if you don't understand <laughs> that this is fucked up. So Kasabian was like a snitch. And we know that people who are granted immunity or jailhouse snitches or people who serve in trial, they can have very helpful information but it's also we're not sure if they're just trying to save themselves as well like she's not going to say stuff that implicates herself right right like maybe she did participate in some way but because she was offered this deal she's like oh yeah fuck yeah i'll say i didn't do anything except for watch and i'll like testify to everything you need to get these people put in jail well her whole story is that once she was out by the car and she saw them like actually killing them like she felt really really bad and she was just horrified and like too stunned to even walk or move so that's her story one of the controversies people bring up about this case is that the caretaker William Gerritsen he's the only person who survived this that was at the house interestingly enough his position isn't visible from the main house so it might have been that the murderers just saw his house and didn't say anything because they didn't think anyone was there or they didn't know Or they didn't even realize it was part of the property or... Yeah, but other people think that perhaps there's things we don't know. You know, perhaps the caretaker was more involved that night than we realize. Or maybe he begged for his life and one of the assailants like gave it to him, but he didn't want to say that later. He didn't hear any of the screams because he said that there was really loud music blaring on his stereo. So he doesn't know what happened. And he was initially arrested for questioning, but later they released him after they were like, okay, you don't know anything. He had said that he briefly met with Steve Parent, the guy that was killed near the security gate in the car, to discuss the sale of the radio. But I don't know. Sounds weird to me. Furthermore, there was other people who came out, anonymous. They were neighbors. And they said that the murders happened at 2 or 2.30, no early which places the murders much later than the caretaker and Kasabian say they were. This neighbor, when interviewed, said that he heard all of the shots and the screams and he was from two houses over. But he didn't call 911? He's like, from my house, you can hear what's happening over there all the time. Like I could hear normal conversation going on. I could hear everything that was going on. But he wanted to remain anonymous because he said, quote, of possible problems. So this anonymous neighbor who lived in this neighborhood, remember, this is like Hollywood's elite, right? And everyone up in these, this is like a party neighborhood. Everyone up here is kind of like going to each other's houses, doing whatever. They gave this interview for the newspaper at the time after this happened. And here's what they said. Anonymously or with their name? Anonymously. Okay. They wanted to remain. I mean, I'm sure they told the newspaper who they were, but they didn't have their name published. Right. Because they said, quote, possible problems, which further. Right. Like, well, I mean, if the family was large and not everyone was put in jail, they could be worried that some family member would come after them. Totally. On the night of the murder, this person says there were two parties going on on this exclusive section of Cielo Drive. One of them was at the home next door to the murder house where a foursome had been invited. Quote, I stayed up late that night. I was in bed reading and had snapped off the light and just dozed off. Something woke me almost immediately. I reached over and I had turned the light on when I heard a loud shot, a woman's scream, then another shot. The second shot seemed more muffled than the first. The first seemed louder. At first I thought I was dreaming, but then I heard other noises, so I figured the party was still going on. I paid no attention. What the noises were didn't register. 
I know all I thought was that the party was just going on. There was a lot of screaming and yelling in this neighborhood on the weekends. You kind of get used to it. It's like living near a freeway. Pretty soon you don't even hear the cars driving by. What woke him up that night, he doesn't know, but he stayed awake long enough after the shots and screams to hear cars driving down the road. Where the cars were coming from, I don't know. There was a lot of traffic that night, like every weekend night. The next morning, the screaming of the maid at the murder scene brought the previous night's sounds into perspective. If I had looked out the window, he said, I could have seen the murderers cutting the phone wires. Ever since the Polish-born film director moved into the home, maybe seven or eight months ago, the neighbor said, there was a lot of traffic, both on foot and in cars, going to and from the home. There was a lot of liquor delivered and a lot of air freight and scripts from studios, too. The reason I know is that they'd always stop at our place to ask how to get into the estate, and I'd always have to show them the way up. The last vehicle that I had noticed going into the house before the murders was a white delivery truck whose driver asked for directions about 6.30 that evening. I couldn't miss anything that's done at the Polanski home. I overheard the conversation between the detective and the telephone man as they were trying to get some clues from the way the wires were cut, but that's not the case, he said. As far as the guest house is concerned, where the caretaker lived, you can't hear anything that's happening in front when you're in the guest house. This, he said, is determined from previous visits with the caretaker and the house's owner, Rudy Altabelli, who both lived in the guest house. At the time of the murder, Altabelli was also in Europe. But from his home, he said, if you listen closely, you can hear the clatter of guests, the music, and even the tinkle of glasses. Although he admits he never met the blonde actress personally, they would wave as neighbors when she would drive by. So he's saying that even though he's next door, he can hear everything, and there, but there was parties going on, so he just assumed it was a party, and it wasn't until the next right. day when the maid screamed that he was like, oh, maybe I heard something else. But he's also saying that from the caretaker's house, you can't really hear anything. But he's also saying that he was friends with the caretaker. So right. maybe he's not going to sell him out. Or maybe he's like, yeah, I'm just going along with the story because I don't want anyone to come kill me because I know differently. Right. You know? So so in this conspiracy theory, people believe that the caretaker and possibly this neighbor knew what was happening but didn't call 911. Yeah. Or people are just calling kind of bullshit on it. Like perhaps they didn't call 911. Perhaps they knew what was going on, but they were feared for their own life and didn't want to be involved. Or perhaps they were also manipulated by Manson. Oh, okay. And they just okay. don't want to be involved. You know, like maybe they knew more that was going on, but they just didn't. They were scared. Okay. Also, people think it was really weird that Jay Sebring, her ex-fiance, was with her at that time. And Roman Polanski just happened to be in Europe. Some people say that maybe she was having an affair with Jay at that time. These murders were motivated by some external source, like Roman himself. We don't oh, know. Oh, okay. That, that's part of the conspiracy theories. Like, you know, maybe these people were just part of the family as well. Before her day in court, that girl who was 14 at the time, Diane Lake, said that her biggest fear wasn't being charged with perjury, but it was seeing Manson in person at the actual trial because she said that, quote, I was afraid he'd have a hold on me, maybe from the good memories or that he'd have the psychological control or input on me, end quote. She talks about how he had this ability to control people, like literally like mind control especially mixed with the LSD. Now, this plays into this other conspiracy theory, which is so fucking batshit that I'm literally just going to read the fucking article because okay. <laughs> I can't even put this into my own words. So you remember MK Ultra? Yes. 
And from my recollection, MKUltra was when the government was experimenting with LSD on young people, mostly college students, to see if they could use LSD to mind control people. And then they were going to apply those findings in war. All of the experiments were super unethical. They would like dose people. Oh yeah, they didn't, didn't even tell people on. what they were doing. And a lot of them were linked with sex as well. They would have sex workers dose people with LSD in order to penetrate their minds, if you will. Yeah, the Unabomber was one of those people who was experimented on by the government and then turned out to, you know, kill a bunch of people with bombs. So according to this article by the Daily Mail, after years of interviews from Bugliosi, the guy who was the prosecutor on this case, with principles in the case, as well as you know research he did on his own, he said that the only loose thread in the story is the role of this mysterious English satanic cult that was active in LA during those years. Not the Manson family, a different English satanic cult. He learned of these new details after working with an LA private investigator named Larry Larson, who was a former LA County deputy who assisted the investigation into the death of Robert F. Kennedy. Larson had been informed through associates that the English satanic group had recruited Charles Manson to murder Tate because of information she had learned about RFK's assassination. The contention is that members of this English cult had invited Sirhan Sirhan to LA parties, and one such party took place at the Sharon Tate residence, where sexual and ritualistic rites occurred, along with heavy drug use. Sirhan Sirhan is referring to Sirhan Bishnara Sirhan, who is a Palestinian convicted murderer that was found guilty of the assassination of Robert F. Kennedy. According to an Immigration and Naturalization Service report, the English Satanist group had commissioned Manson to kill Sharon because of something that she unfortunately overheard that she was not supposed to overhear, either in regards to Sirhan Sirhan or about Sirhan Sirhan. Whether or not Sharon knew something about the Robert Kennedy assassination remains unanswered. The author conducted a correspondence with Manson back in the 1980s, Manson sent him a six-page reply to a question list, but also said, quote, I'm not schooled enough to play words on paper with you, end quote. Manson also refused to answer a follow-up question asking whether he was offered $25,000 to kill Tate, as alleged by a woman and her husband who stated that they witnessed the contact with Manson happen. So in that conspiracy theory, this person who like researched all of this and knew all of these people said that he found this private investigator who said that there's actually like this satanic cult that was operating that got Manson to do this because Sharon had overheard something she wasn't supposed to hear about an assassination. So kind of like a CIA type situation. Okay. So was it a cult or was it an Illuminati group? I mean, they, they don't go on to say. Because it seems weird that there would just like be another Manson cult that somehow knew about the assassination of Robert F. Kennedy. So it, like to me, it sounds like they're More of like an Illuminati type. Yeah, like an Illuminati conspiracy type thing. Right. Or some people think that Robert F. Kennedy was murdered by our government. Right. right. So like the satanic cult angle doesn't make sense to me, but perhaps they're just using that as a placeholder for like whatever the real organization is. Maybe the CIA is an English satanic. <laughs> I don't know. So now it goes one deeper. 
Have you heard of orange sunshine? That sounds like a drug. It's a type of LSD that Lee Harvey Oswald had taken to be brainwashed by MKUltra, apparently, in this In this conspiracy, conspiracy. theory. Interesting. Yes. So MKUltra is the name given to a series of experiments conducted by the CIA on human subjects using drugs and hallucinogens. In the late 1950s, the CIA cornered the market on LSD at the time, buying a massive 10 kilograms of the hallucinogenic drug, which was enough LSD to dose half of the population. The Class A drug has been known to cause confusion, paranoia, out-of-body episodes, intense bliss, or even 12-hour bursts of uncontrollable psychosis. According to this History Channel, MKUltra attempted to learn to control and even reprogram people's minds using the experimental drug. Author Evan Wright said, What the CIA really dreamed of was a drug you could use to give to someone to get them to commit all sorts of unspeakable acts, and they would wake up the next day and not even remember what they had done. A former Marine with reported ties to the Soviet Union, some believe Lee Harvey Oswald may have been an ideal candidate for MKUltra's mind control testing. The most shocking piece of evidence for Oswald's involvement with MKUltra took place at a press conference hours after JFK's death. During the press conference, Oswald was asked if he killed the president, to which he replied, quote, No, I have not been charged with that. In fact, nobody has said that to me yet, end quote. Oswald was shot and killed just two days after his arrest on November 22nd and was never formally found guilty of JFK's assassination. MKUltra's existence was outed to the public in the 1970s, leading the government to shut down the research program. But whistleblowers claimed the CIA's mind control experiments simply moved underground, adopting a new name, MMC. Theorists believe MKUltra went on to commit some of the most famous murders in history, including the brutal murders carried out by Charles Manson and his cult family. For example, cult leader Charles Manson was responsible for the deaths of seven people in 1969, including director Roman Polanski's wife Sharon Tate. A happy commune living off the beaten track in California, the Manson family were supposedly linked to the CIA through their use of a drug called Orange Sunshine, a strand of LSD used by John Lennon and Steve Jobs. Theorists claim that Manson and his friends were brainwashed by the intelligence agency using Orange Sunshine in order to convince the American public hippies were dangerous. That, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if Charles Manson was one of the people who ended up being experimented on via MKUltra because we know that MKUltra was real. We know that it was happening in California was one of the places and we know it was happening during this time frame. So it would not surprise me if he was receiving some of this orange sunshine or special government LSD and going through some sort of indoctrination process. It really wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, it's just crazy to me that the U.S. like bought more LSD than anyone else. And they have that like Steve Jobs and John Lennon and Charles Manson and apparently whoever the fuck else also took this LSD. It's crazy. Right. Yeah, it me. is. It's crazy. But also I like would not be surprised. The other conspiracy people say is that Roman Polanski was actually involved in this somehow that he was feeling dragged down by Sharon, that she was having this baby that he didn't want to be responsible for. And so he actually paid Manson to do this 
evidence to support that theory is that Roman Polanski happened to be out of town that day. Yeah, that is weird. And he was supposed to come back that day, but then his flight got moved to the next day. Also, Polanski says that following the release of his film, Rosemary's Baby, the media presumed that he was in league with the devil and he was persecuted for months until the Manson family was identified. And he said that the cycle never ended and now there's women accusing him of other impropriety. Quote, all of this haunts me today, anything and everything. It's like a snowball. Each season adds another layer. Absurd stories by women I have never seen before in my life who accuse me of things which supposedly happened more than half a century ago. End quote. The reason I'm reading his shit, even though he's a rapist, is because I'm trying to paint him as someone who would pay Charles Manson perhaps to kill Sharon Tate if we're going to go with this conspiracy theory, right? Like that's evidence to support it. It is suspicious that he was just happened to be out of town and then moved his flight to a different day so that he would have like a good alibi. According to this article that I read, Tate, when she was engaged to Sebring at the time, shared a cube of acid with Roman Polanski after meeting him and then they had sex and then they got engaged and that's like when Polanski started using her in these sex videos and he was filming these orgies of her at the house and it was reported that there was like BDSM like porno movies going on and that he was trolling Sunset Boulevard and all these clubs for young girls to bring home for threesomes and that Sharon was like super intimidated and she didn't want to do this but like you said she just wanted to keep his interest some way. This article says that whenever she was out in public with Roman she like never even talked like she never opened her mouth because he didn't like her to talk and that one time she took this mini vacation with her girlfriends to go up to the spawn big sur and while she was gone polanski went to la and he invited this young balinese model and rented this beachfront mansion in santa monica and then they just like fucked all night and she at this time like came forward and told him like well i'm pregnant and then that's when he said if it's even my kid like get rid of it like i don't think it's my kid and she's like no no it's your kid and he's like no no i don't want it people said that he like just treated her like she was this excess piece of baggage and that he was really cruel to her in front of others. He called her dumb. He like said that she was talentless. He like criticized her all the time, but she was super under his spell. She is quoted as saying, quote, we have a good arrangement. Roman lies to me and I pretend to believe him, end quote. Yeah, it sounds like he was a total piece of shit. I doesn't, I cannot see a single redeeming quality <laughs> from anything you've told me. It just seems like, you know, there's a reason why drugs are heavily involved with sex trafficking. Um, people are easier to manipulate when they're under the influence of anything. That could be alcohol. That could be like LSD. It could be, I don't know, some sort of opiate. Could be anything. Yeah, it sounds like a total piece of shit. <laughs> Here's a good paranormal conspiracy is that the house was haunted. So remember how when she was dating Jay, she was staying at his house and she had that premonition in his house? Right. That house was super, super haunted. There had been murders there that had happened before. After Sebring died, two other people moved into it. And they shortly had like a murder-suicide happen in that house right after. So that house might have been haunted and maybe something stuck with them. An attachment. An attachment. At the house where the actual murders took place, the guy who was renting the house to them was a dick after this happened and ended up sending Sharon Tate's family like a bill for all of the damage incurred on the house. Oh my God. And tried to have a lawsuit with them. 
What a piece of shit. Why is everyone a piece of shit? And he was just like, oh, this is such negative press for my house. Like, no one's going to want to buy it now because these. Okay, but how is that the fault of the family of the woman who was brutally murdered? Every rich person in L.A. is just a total piece of shit. I know, right? That guy ended up suing her parents for $480,000. Oh, my God. Including $300,000 for embarrassment, humiliation, emotional, and mental distress over the murder of your daughter. I hope that man is dead now. The court ultimately gave him a $4,350. After the judgment, he said that, quote, this is not a personal vendetta against Sharon Tate or her family. It was just business, end quote. All right, dude. It's like, if dude, if you have this million-dollar mansion at there, like, you can't afford to pay for some repairs on the house, like, that's fucked. Yeah, don't be a landlord if you can't handle that, like, shit happens in houses. So we've heard some crazy batshit theories, but, like, this one, I think, takes the cake. So this theory is basically that when you take LSD, like we've talked about in previous episodes, when you take LSD, you're you're opening up a portal to some sort of otherworldly dimension. Okay. And, and that is what Charles Manson insisted to all of his followers. And I'm going to play you a video where he basically talks about how he's like, it wasn't even him. It was like something else controlling his body, which to me sounds like a demon, right? Or like sounds like possession, doesn't it? Right. Some other interdimensional being that enters his body via his third eye opening from LSD. This is a video called The Best of Charles from YouTube. I tried to stop Nixon and I stopped him dead in his tracks. I tried to stop the Vietnam War, and I did it. And I was convicted for being the father of this country. And all the things I did, I did without breaking the law. Maybe I haven't done enough. I might be ashamed of that for not doing enough. You'll all follow me. <laughs> I don't. You know, you got two. You got these people over here that want to live. You want to live? Get in line. We'll live. You don't want to live? Hurry up. <laughs> You know, the gate's open. You know, do your thing, man. Here, give them some coke. All Charlie's friends get free coke. Give them responsibility for the children that they said that I influenced. You know, you want to drop the blame on Charlie and say it's all Charlie's fault. What did you do? I do the best thing I know how. Nothing. I f I play music and I smoke a little grass now and then because it helps me and I like to relax with it. That's about it. Why don't you blame the little babies? Mr. Emmons, this is a, this is a very... I gotta take a sh**. Would you excuse me? Mm. Hey, you don't mind if I'm directing to the point, do you? Not at all. It don't take me to tell you that you're about 10 pounds overweight, does it? Thanks. <laughs> but I can be honest with you, Ken. Drugs, LSD, I don't consider a drug. I don't consider poverty a drug. Those are more or less religiously significant awareness, mind-expanding apparatuses that come from the intelligence of the universe. The reason that the girls liked me was, Hey now, hey now, I'm all around you, around you. Hey now, up on your heart I can sing through you. And I play and I sing and they say, hey man, you, you, got, you got soul in that music. And I said, yeah, I, I play a little bit, you know. I like music. And they said, man, you're really somebody. I said, oh, I am? Well, I just got out of jail. I don't know what somebody is. They like my music. They say, man, we want to get you over. I said, get me over for what? 
He said, we take you down here to Beverly Hills, and we want to get you in with because you're a star. I said, I'm a what? They said, you're a star. So they took me to the Beach Boys. Brain, I did not break the law. Jesus Christ told you that 2,000 years ago. You don't understand me. That's your trouble. Not my fault because you don't understand me. I don't understand you either. But I don't spend my whole life trying to put the blame over on you because my cigarette didn't light or because something didn't work right. What do you want to call me a murderer for? I've never killed anyone. I don't need to kill anyone. I think it. I have it here. I don't need to live in this physical realm. I walk around in the physical realm, and I put on the faces, and I talk, and I play, and hang, yeah, it's this big act, man. In the spiritual world is where I live. I exist in places you never even dreamed of. I don't... I'm just another guy walking down the road going, how many times I got to go, who's got it? Yeah, I've got a face, and I'm painting the What is it? I'm an old man. All I want to do is retire. Get on the desert and be left alone. I don't want to bother nobody. I'm hiding out from the rock. They come to me and say, hey, Charlie, come on. I said, what do you want? Do you want to talk? I said, about what? We have problems. People look at you today, 20 years later, and they still have no idea what you're about. Tell me in a sentence who you are. Okay, I have so many thoughts. First of all, the top comment on this says, if he was still alive, he would be the final guest on Joe Rogan's podcast, and that made me laugh. Other comments I have are that this is like a perfect example of the mysticism to Nazism pipeline in action, and also the hippie to QAnon pipeline as well. Like, this is just such a perfect example. This guy is out of his fucking mind. Another thought I had as he was talking is, why do psychopaths always talk? in the third person and then charlie said a bop 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 and then charlie did a bop 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 and everyone likes charlie and you hate charlie it's like dude you're the one talking about yourself just say i mm -hmm. like you are such a psycho the other thing i have to say is did he get the swastika tattooed on his forehead in jail or, or before so. jail i would assume in jail yeah because if that if he was just walking around <laughs> recruiting people from the jump with a swastika on his forehead then like that's a different problem we've got to talk about the the part where he's like talking to this woman and they're in this very sterile courtroom sort of atmosphere and then he's like i gotta get up and take a shit yeah yeah and then he's like you don't mind me being being direct do you and then she's like no and then he's like okay well then i'm gonna tell you that you're 10 pounds overweight right he definitely was a clown he he knew how to cause a scene you know yeah clown is the right word crazy 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 guy. insane what he was saying there about how he's not even part of this realm and how he just thinks something to make it happen and like he does these mind altering mind you know expanding drugs and he connected to like a spiritual side or whatever some people think that that's what the cult was actually connecting to mm. from a paranormal standpoint the last theory that i'm going to talk about here is this theory i don't even know what to call it let's just say here's some loose ends 
So the prosecutor of this case said that Melcher, the guy who turned down his record deal, might have been a little bit more involved than he said he was. This album that Charles Manson's making is supposed to be this great awakening. He's going to use this music to transition people into the cult and indoctrinate them. Melcher is that record producer, but he's also this gatekeeper to that album that is going to, you know, open the world's third eye, or if you will, or whatever. The prosecutor is saying that Melcher was supposedly, like, really scared of Manson. And that's what he said when he testified. He's like, oh, he scared me because he was, like, you know, just such a crazy guy. And I was, like, really afraid of him and blah, blah, blah. And so, like, I knew there was something wrong with him. And that's why I didn't do the record deal and da, da, da. And he, like, did all this stuff. And I, you know, my mom had it out for him and all of this. Weirdly enough... Melcher was supposedly so scared of Manson that he had to be medicated to testify at this trial, but it was discovered on two archived accounts that Melcher was actually hanging out with Manson after the murders. Oh, wow. Which suggests that he's perhaps not in fear of his life, like he had said in court of Manson. This person who wrote this speculated that he might have been protecting Hollywood notables like Doris Day and Hollywood elites, or that he might have wanted to advance his own political ambitions and sell books. Uh, oh, the yeah. Manson family. Like, I'm oh, sure. I have the scoop. Like, let me tell you what it was like hanging out with Charlie Manson. Right before the Tate LaBianca murders, there was a call made to this person named Bobby Bosoulet, who had been arrested in the killing of Gary Hinman. And had implored all of his, like, family members from the Manson family to, quote, leave him a sign. And in that scheme, the murders were conceived to bring him away from custody by creating more killings to make it look like the killer was still at large. So he wouldn't get tried with the murder of Gary Hinman. And that the frenzied stabbing and the, you know, some variants of pig written in blood at all the scenes suggested that this killer was still at large. Wait, who's Gary Hinman? Okay, I left this part out because I didn't think it was that cool, but now I realize that it's going to help for this part of the conspiracy theory. So basically, the too long didn't read thing about this Gary Hinman was he was a good dude, friends with the family, and he went out of town and like allowed them to stay at his house, and uh, they all did drugs and partied and everything was good. Uh, there was this guy, this uh, Soleil guy, whatever the fuck his name was, uh, Bobby Bobby Boucher, Bobby Boussoleil. Okay, so Bobby Boucher, which was also, <laughs> I know his name isn't Bobby Boucher, but it's funny, was also a member of the Manson family, and he bought some mescaline, like $1,000 worth of mescaline from Gary Hinman, and then sold it to other people, and then those people, like, complained and said that it wasn't good and that they wanted their money back, so then Bobby Boussoulet went to Gary Hinman and was like, hey, I need that $1,000 back. There was, like, uh, a scuffle, one might say, that ended in murder. According to Bobby Boussoulet, Soleil, Manson drew out a samurai sword and cut Hinman's ear and his cheek because he demanded that he give him more money. But Gary Hinman was like, oh, I don't have money and I'm a hippie and I don't believe in violence and I don't believe in money. I actually don't have anything. I don't own my cars. I don't own my house. 
Manson was super pissed. And then Bobby Boussoulet was like, I don't know what to do. So he tried to like stitch up the wounds on Gary Hinman with dental floss. But he realized like, oh, if I bring them to the emergency room, I'm going to end up going to prison anyway. So he didn't know what to do. So then Manson told him, here's what you're going to do. We're going to kill the guy. And then we're going to write political piggy in blood across the wall. Very similar to the Tate LaBianca murders so that they could convince the Black Panthers were involved. Uh, And then this was like the murder that happened before the Tate LaBianca murders. So this was part of the thing that was going to start Helter Skelter. But they didn't think that this particular murder was enough. That's where they went after the bigger celebrities. According to this theory, there's this guy who's b- also a murderer. There's this guy who is a murderer. He's in prison for killing this guy named Gary Hinman. Okay. Um, in a very similar way with like frenzied stabbing and all of that. And he, and there was a phone call from the La Bianca household to this guy in jail. No. And that there was a, there was supposedly a phone call before the Tate La Bianca murders that were like, Hey, um, you know, we're going to leave you a sign. This is just crazy tin hat Wait, shit. Uh, yeah, but I don't understand who's getting the call. Is it Charles Manson or is it the LaBianca household? No, the call was made by the guy who killed Gary Hinman. Oh, not a literal phone call. There's no evidence of a phone call. It's that people think that this guy in jail for killing Gary Oldman or right, whatever. was telling the family to go commit okay. another murder so that way I can get off because it'll look like the killer's still at large and they arrested the wrong person. Okay, yeah, that's a loose end right there. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Well, the other possible loose end that crossed my mind is if you guys remember the Christmas Mansion murder episode, uh, Los Feliz Christmas Mansion murder episode that I did at the end of last year in December, that murder happened in the exact same neighborhood as the La Bianca murder. And as we learned in that episode, that entire neighborhood is thought to be cursed to some degree. So that's another loose end evidence to support that theory is that basically like everyone's giving false confessions because they're all just trying to cover up for other people like we don't we don't know what was trying to be covered up this theory is basically just saying shit's being covered up okay for whatever reasons and then here i'm just going to play some of these confessions by these girls susan atkins is 28 now she's just ended her first seven years of a life term she has spent five of them here at the women's institution in san bernardino county She's just had her first parole hearing and been turned down. But the people who work with her here say that she's made a remarkable change in the last two years. They say she's become a devout Christian, and she says she wants only to serve God. Susan Atkins feels that her horrifying experience with drugs can be a lesson to those that use them or think about using them. Today, she says her bizarre behavior was born out of Manson's evil persuasiveness and fed by her constant drug use. During her Manson years, Susan Atkins dropped acid at least 300 times, and she smoked, swallowed, shot up, and snorted every other drug in sight. And although she had no drugs in her first five years of imprisonment, she says it took her that long to fully regain her consciousness, to even begin to realize what she had done. She hasn't spoken with a reporter since the trial in 1970. She got word to me that she wanted to talk about the dangers of drug use, that she also wanted to reveal something new about the murders. What happened that night you all went to Sharon Tate's house? What really happened? Well, I remember getting in the car with Tex and... Tex Watson. Tex Watson and my other two co-defendants. Three co-defendants, actually. Um, And before I ever got in the car, 
Tex and I had our own special little stash of uh, cocaine. You know, I think it was cocaine or methadrine, I'm not sure which. We were with speed and we both snorted some speed and got in the car. We were very, very wired. And we drove to the house uh, with instructions to kill everyone in the house. Frank Charlie? Yeah. Um, and not just that, but that we were instructed to go all the way down every house, hit every house on the... Down the street? On the street, yes. And kill all the people kill in those houses? Kill all the people in all those houses. Um, and we went into the house, and I remember that as we went in, a car came up to the driveway, and I remember Tex getting out, and without saying anything, there were gunfire sh shot. I was in the bushes. And, uh, That's when the young boy, Stephen Parent, was, right, killed was killed in the right. car outside. Right. The people in the house were all brought into the living room and tied up. And I remember that Wojtek Bakowski, I believe is his name, I had tied his hands with a towel and then was instructed to kill him. And I raised the knife that I had in my hand and I couldn't put the knife down. I couldn't, I couldn't bring it down. It was just as though there was a force there that held my wrist and I couldn't, I couldn't move. And as he saw that I couldn't move, then he very easily undid the ties, the towel that I had tied his wrist with, and he and I began to fight. And I remember I was screaming for help and he was screaming for help, and then Tex came and helped me. And I was left to sit and watch Sharon Tate and about that time, it, all I can remember seeing is people just scattering in different places and running in different places. And I was left sitting with Sharon Tate, and she was talking to me. And I remember that I had absolutely, I could have, I felt nothing. I felt absolutely nothing for her um, as she begged for her life and for the life of her baby. And uh, I remember when we first went in, one of the people said, who are you? And Tex said, I'm the devil, and I'm here to do the devil's business. And I remember that in my conscience, it, it's so alive in me, even just recalling it, I remember that I had gone so far and there was no turning back. There, even if I had wanted to run, even if I had wanted to leave, I couldn't. It was like I was caught in something that I had no control over. I had absolutely no say-so as to what was happening there. I was just like a tool in the hands of the devil is the only way I can put it. And I believe that it was by the grace of God that my hand did not go down with that knife on Wojciech Bajkowski's chest. I believe that... Uh, well, who did kill those people? That night? Yeah. Tex. You wanna... Well, I can ask you now, what, yeah. what did Tex really do there? Of what I saw happening in Tex. The way he moved, the viciousness and cold, um, it was just like seeing somebody go crazy with more power than I've ever seen anybody. I don't think he was in control of himself. I think that he was, in their own human strength, could do what Tex did. Well, Charles night. Manson was in control of him, right? Yeah, as far as giving orders, but I don't think Charles Manson's mind was in control of Tex's mind that night. I think that it was a higher power than that. Charlie's human, too. You know, and his mental uh, powers are just as limited, maybe not as limited as other humans, but that 
There was an evil force in control of Tex that night. Oh, in control he, he, of Bonner, yeah, obviously. He, yeah, he did things that... You've heard stories, I'm sure, of people who have lifted up cars off of other people, how they have superhuman strength. Well, Tex had that kind of strength that night. Uh, but not for good, it was for evil. Are you trying to lay the blame off on him? No. No. Then what exactly. do you think is the point of this? That the truth be told, that the truth be made known. I tried to take blame from Tex and from Charlie and from Pat and from Leslie by taking and saying that I had killed Sharon Tate and that I had killed Gary Hinman. I tried to take some of the blame and put it on myself because I thought that was my part at that point, and that was a lie. And In this room were all the survivors of those victims, of yours and the others, their families and their friends. What would you say to them? About me now is that I'm not the woman that I was in 1969. I'm a new creature in Christ. I've been completely spiritually, mentally, and almost physically born again, though my outside is not changed all that much, the inside of me has changed, that I love them with a love that I don't think any words that I could tell them could express, but only by living a life that may help somebody else, by preventing maybe somebody else from going down the same road, by preventing other survivors of such a terrible thing is the only way that I could say what I would have to say to them. I just love them. I feel for them. I feel their pain. I feel their, their sorrows and, and their loss. And I didn't feel that years ago. I didn't feel anything for them. So Roman Polanski, after this happens, puts out a, a bounty, essentially, for information leading to the capture of the people who are responsible for this for $25,000. As we know, I mean, obviously, you know, even if you're fighting with your wife or, wife or whatever, if you find out she's brutally fucking murdered, you're allowed to be sad. But at the same time, I'm like, at the same time, he's him. an abuser. Yeah, yeah. So it's hard to take an abuser seriously in any capacity. Like, is this just a PR move so that people don't think he's in on it? Because like you said, following this situation, a lot of people thought he was in on it until the Manson family was charged. Was this just his damage control? I don't know. And that girl who's saying that stuff, it just sounds so like something that she was just told to say. Like, oh, yeah, I didn't feel anything. She was begging for her life and I just didn't care, you know? Yeah. Sounds like someone who's been indoctrinated with, I don't know, or maybe she started off as a sociopath. I don't know. That's the episode. And while I think this case, we could like look into it for such a long time because there are so many conspiracies that come out of this. I think that it's hard to say which one I believe in. I feel like there might be just a mix of all of them. Like, was this place fucking haunted? Absolutely. If it wasn't to start with, it is now. Yeah. Like, was the Hollywood elites just like pieces of shit who were um, abusing women and giving them drugs to control them? Yeah. Absolutely. (laughs) Was Charles Manson a crazy psychopath who thought he could use LSD to open up another portal and channel energy to create whatever post-apocalyptic utopian paradise he dreamed of? I absolutely believe he thought that. 
Like, do I believe that there are people involved in this case, like Kasabian and the caretaker and perhaps some of the neighbors who had been to these orgies and knew the shit was going on are keeping mum or not telling the full story to save their asses? Absolutely. Do I think Roman Polanski knows more about this story than anyone else? Absolutely. But all of the people who know what happened that night are dead. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's the fucked up. When no victims survive, you don't get the full story because the only story you're getting are from the people who fucking did the depraved shit. And like you said about the girl who was granted immunity, like we can't, can we trust her? Is she a reliable narrator? I mean, who's to say? Because she could just be saying whatever prosecution wanted her to say to save her own skin. We don't know. Yeah. Because none of the people who were not involved in the murder lived. Yeah. Except for the caretaker who supposedly But he, even him. Yeah. yeah. Supposedly he didn't see or hear anything and like who's to say? I don't know. But I think the angle of like was Charles Manson using government LSD and like is he like someone who could have been like manipulated by MK Ultra. MK Ultra. I, it's possible. I mean, totally possible though. Could he have been made crazy because he was just taking a ton Too of LSD? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, I'm sure a lot of listeners out there have an experience or know somebody who like took way too many drugs and went a little crazy and and perhaps never got better. Right. Yeah. You know, I remember a guy that went to our college who did a bunch of drugs. Allegedly, what people said, I believe, was mushrooms is that he did too many mushrooms. And then he just like got naked and ran through the quad and was like the police came and they were trying to catch him. And he like almost threw himself off a building like it's really <gasps> fucking sad and fucked up. And he had to go to a mental hospital. Oh, my God. And he got pulled out of school. And I mean, I hope he recovered since then. But I know like as as recently as a few years ago, he was still posting like crazy batshit crazy shit on Facebook. So, yeah. And he was normal before that. So that's the scary thing about taking psychedelics is that they say if you already have something going on, like schizophrenia or some sort of a propensity. Yeah you know whatever that it can bring out psychosis in you right and that's when my doctor was like don't mix mushrooms with your Adderall and I was like no 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 <laughs> oh I you're forgot about that you're my doctor not my dad so I mean who's who's to say did he I mean I'm sure doing tons of LSD regardless of whether or not it was at the behest of the government or at the behest of his own free will like doing a shit ton of drugs when you're already like kind of crazy kind of crazy is not gonna help you yeah yeah yeah, crazy, spooky, weird wow. story. But I mean, that house is definitely haunted. The La Bianca house, absolutely haunted. And I know it's still there and people live in it because they, so that's... They, yeah, so yeah. they raised it to the ground, but then they rebuilt it. Yeah, so like a I mean... Yeah, it's crazy. I know. And that whole Los Feliz neighborhood is supposedly super haunted. My friend recently moved out of that neighborhood. If you guys remember from that episode, I interviewed a friend living in that neighborhood. So she moved out and she was like, I've never felt better. Like all of the problems she was having... Oh, I don't want to simplify it, obviously, but like a lot of no, the no, no, issues. Simplify it. it was haunted. Yeah. A lot of the issues she was like having in were the time. Were directly related to a yes. haunted location. She moved out of that house and she was like, holy shit, the bad vibes have like lifted. I feel like that's LA in general. Like for some reason, as soon as I leave this place, I can see so much more clearly right. what I need to do in my life. But like when I'm here, I'm like, oh, no, no, no. I need to like go get a matcha latte. And, like, <laughs> and then I leave. And I'm like, bitch, what are you doing? You need to start a fund. Yeah, <laughs> I will say that my friend is still living in LA but moved into like a cookie cutter apartment 
that right. like there's no way it could be haunted it's like yeah. newer and has like great security and she's like thriving good yeah so i don't know there's something to be said about haunted houses and bad vibes haunted school buses haunted school buses i mean if their whole fucking family was living in that scary ass haunted western film movie set yeah, thing yeah. like who knows what kind of ghost they picked up there oh, man i i will say though charles manson total piece of shit oh totally roman polanski total piece of shit this is my opinion no justification at all for the people who like murdered Sharon Tate and her friends and the LaBianca household and shit's fucked up yeah shit's super fucked up (sighs) when I read stuff like that I like just get so angry I like go into fight mode yeah you know yeah that's how I felt looking at those crime scene photos I was just thinking like this is so fucked up like if this was my family member and the crime scene photos were leaked of them I would be so fucking angry the only time I think it's okay for autopsy photos or crime scene photos to be made public is when it's an unidentified person so we we have to release a photo of them mm-hmm. to like so we can identify them or like a war crime like it's so fucked up that yeah. if we try to hide this we are at risk of repeating it again those are the only times I think it's okay but it just seems like fucked up that these crime scene photos were leaked and it's just Sharon Tate half naked pregnant and dead I think it's like fucked up and also the fucking landlord the whole thing the, everyone so is fucked that's why that's what I mean. Like, I feel like everyone's hiding shit and I don't have to explain why. I just know it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone in this story is shady. Yes. And there's not one redeemable person in this story. Yeah. Not yeah. one. I'm trying to think of one person that I trust. No. Can't think of anyone. Not one person. No. Not even the people writing the articles. Like, who's paying you? Yeah. And there's so many books that have been written about this and so many things yeah, that have been written. Yeah, who's making money? Yes. It's like, no, you can't trust anyone, guys. That's like, again, I'm telling you, I'm watching Mindhunter right now. And one of the controversies in one of the episodes is like, is it ethical to interview a serial killer and get their story in their own words when we know we're going to be getting a biased recreation of whatever narrative they want to spread so even interviewing charles manson is like you know yeah like what's the motivation of the person talking to them you know what's crazy is there were still people who followed him like after he was in jail there was still people in southern california that like were friends with him up until he died in 2017 people are so stupid and that's also how manipulative he was too yeah i think so you know yeah i think i think we can recognize that he was a master manipulator while also recognizing that we all have the responsibility to like not be fucking played yeah exactly by an, a loser total loser who yeah doesn't even have cool music who has a swastika <laughs> tattooed on his forehead and like dude I last thing i'm gonna say about this is that magazine that i brought i like bought at the grocery store and when i bought it because it was like for this podcast i was like oh this will be great wealth of information it talks about all these different cult leaders so i'll have this for episode ideas this fucking lady at the grocery store was looking at me buying this like i was like really fucked <laughs> up when she grabbed the magazine to like scan it or whatever after she scanned it she put it face down and she was like i will not even look in that man's eyes wow. she was like that is an evil man i don't even say his name out loud and i don't even look in his eyes and i was like oh, i just have this podcast yeah no i didn't even say this podcast because i like didn't want to start that conversation i was like oh i have a friend who like really loves like haunted stuff like this i'm gonna give it to her and she was like oh yeah your friend <laughs> yeah yeah but that's scary to me she scared me i was like what i can't even look in his eyes and then i was like looking at a picture and he does have dark Crazy. vacuous eyes, eyes where you're like if i look in these too long is this gonna open 
open up a portal and like I don't know. Does he have Sanpaku eyes, which we talked about in the Kennedy Curse episode? Let me look. He has the upper Sanpaku eyes in which the white is visible from the iris, thought to indicate a dangerous psychopath. I didn't talk about upper whites of the eyes in my episode of um, the Kennedy Curse. I talked about lower whites of the eyes, and lower whites of the eyes indicates usually that someone's going to die in a tragic way. Oh God! So apparently, upper whites of the eyes means that you're a psycho, but the skeptic side of that whole like theory about Sanpaku eyes is that well but also people who are like severely mentally ill or people who take a lot of drugs also get that upper white or lower white of the eye so who's to say I'm not saying why I'm just saying be careful out there be careful out there guys don't take Um, the time to find out if they're a murderer it does yeah at the (laughs) end of the day man be careful because the mysticism to grifter or mysticism to cult or mysticism to Nazism or mysticism to extremism or hippie to QAnon pipeline is real and it's always fun to talk about like haunted shit like we do on this podcast right but just be aware of what theories you're believing in or what roads you're going down because sometimes shit can turn haunted real quick negatively haunted I think that it's really good to have personal boundaries like Mm -hmm. I think it's really good to be like hey I know what this person believed but I don't believe that yeah so anyway haunted story Natalia crazy and this concludes part two of our expose on the Manson family haunted as fuck not the vibes the hauntings and conspiracies of the manson family murders if you guys have heard some other conspiracies let me know because there was a bevy of them and i did not have time to talk about all of them or look into all of them so yeah i feel like the best rabbit hole is the orange sunshine rabbit hole right i know because you could connect steve jobs john lennon lee harvey oswald Charlie Manson and perhaps the some, Unabomber. Yeah, you can go so deep with that. Yeah, you, you guys. can go very deep with that. Especially Steve Jobs. Uh, yeah. He wears a lot of black shirts. What's up with that? Yeah. He's dead now. Our iPhone's haunted. Wait, is he dead? Yeah. Yeah. He died of cancer, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, there's another guy that was in the mysticism to grifter pipeline because he had a very curable form of cancer and thought that if he just ate apples, he wouldn't need chemo. He had like positive thinking. He wouldn't need chemo. And then he allegedly, this is another conspiracy. Once he realized that wasn't going to work, he paid a bunch of money to jump to the top of the donor list to get a donor organ and took it away from somebody else and then died anyway because he was too far gone. Steve Jobs? Yeah. He thought if he could just eat apples, he thought if he ate a clean organic diet and went like vegan. And oh, I thought you meant he just ate apples. And I was like, apples, it's all connected. Yeah, Apple, yeah. Macintosh. Oh, my God. The neurons are firing. Yeah, yeah. My third eye is opening. <laughs> no, this is a conspiracy theory. Oh, I we mean, don't know if it's true or not. Well, I mean, it's true that he thought that he, with positive thinking and clean organic eating, he could get rid of his cancer. So I don't have respect for what people if, that think that. What if it goes even deeper and he figured out that he could and then the government killed him because big pharma? That's actually a conspiracy that Nick Cannon believes. Really? Yeah, there's some doctor that I have not had time to research who I believe is based out of somewhere in Africa. I could be totally wrong. And he had some sort of theory that, yeah, clean eating could cure everything and then he died. And so people were like, it has to be the government. Mm. But I, I have not read 
anything about it. So that's just a TLDR from like some Nick Cannon rant that I watched. Alyssa sent me this meme that had a bunch of different tiers of conspiracies and like which tiers are like the craziest. And there was one of them that was like on this level, you start to like lose touch with reality or something like that. I researched all of these things because some of them I had never heard of them. And one of them was like pancreases aren't real. And I was like, <laughs> what? And I Googled it and I was like, pancreases aren't real conspiracy theory. And apparently this is like a proponent of big pharma. Some people believe that you don't need your pancreas to survive and that big pharma is just telling you that you need to so that they can sell you all this insulin and like all this stuff. But like in reality, we don't need a pancreas. And I was like, that's what I'm telling you. It's a pipeline. Be careful. You know what? Just to reiterate, this show is for entertainment purposes. It's just where we talk about haunted shit that lives in our brains rent free and talk about all the crazy conspiracy theories and rabbit holes that we find on the internet, all the tinfoil shit. And we're not responsible. It's honestly stupid that at the end of every conspiracy theory episode, we have to like be like, hey, by the way, we're not responsible if you get indoctrinated (laughs) with the ghosts and stuff. We're just kind of like, no, no, this is real. This is real i'm on board with ghosts i'm not on board with charles manson right yeah yeah thank you natalia for um bringing this haunting to my attention brb gotta go uh put orange sunshine into my brain (laughs) Bye. bye On a summer night, Douglas Wagg Jr. lay motionless across a strip of railroad tracks before being struck by an oncoming train. I'm investigative journalist Delia D'Ambra, and my investigation into exactly how Doug died took me into the depths of a bizarre mystery. It was really hard to understand what was fact and what wasn't. A mystery that has led me from one suspicious death to another. Listen to CounterClock now, wherever you listen to podcasts.